Thin Air Podcast is supported by our donors at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. If you're looking for more from us, you'll find it there. For $5 a month, you'll receive exclusive mini-episodes, transcripts, and a new perk, ad-free episodes. If you would like to help support what we do, check out patreon.com slash thinairpodcast for more information. This episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Smile Direct Club. Smile Direct Club is the first digital brand for your smile, using technology to help you avoid office visits and cut costs. Get 50% off your evaluation by visiting smiledirectclub.com and using promo code THINAIR at checkout. Really, it's random guy shows up in a random place in the middle of nowhere and decides, you know what, that's it. And now there are thousands and thousands of people trying to figure out how to get this guy to go home. On the morning of September 17th, 2001, police were called to Lake Quinault Hotel in Amanda Park, a largely rural community in the northwest corner of Washington State. It was called in as a reported suicide, which, you know, unfortunately is not too uncommon in our work. That was Detective Brad Johansson, currently a lieutenant with the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Office. Amanda Park is small, with a population of around 250. Its infrastructure, government, police, things like that, would be run by Grays Harbor County. Grays Harbor County is just under 2,000 square miles, and in that there are several municipalities within the uh, county itself. Initially, this harbor was probably known for the fishing and logging industry, and then since, you know, in later times, that's not so much the case. You know, logging and fishing has both gone down, but, but we're still a pretty rural community, and then with a few, you know, cities inside of Grace Harbor. Police arrived at the hotel and entered the man's room, room five. They discovered that this man had given the hotel clerk the name Lyle Stevick. Once inside, they found Lyle upright, on his knees, in the room's alcove, his head tilted straight up. Upon closer examination, police could see that he had a leather belt buckled tightly around his throat. There was a green washcloth tucked underneath his chin, most likely to prevent pain or irritation. The length of the belt is looped around a metal luggage storage rack, which is just above his head. His neck is craned upwards towards it at an unsettling angle. His eyes are slightly open, but vacant. His skin is slightly yellowed. It is clear that the man is dead. Police assumed a fairly open and shut case with Lyle. With no signs of foul play, suicide appeared to be the cause of death. They had a body which was clearly recognizable, and a name, and they assumed they could work backwards from there to find out who Lyle was and inform his family. But this isn't how it happened. And when deputies first arrived, I don't think it was anything, you know, too unusual than any other suicide that, you know, we go to. It didn't really take on a different uh, turn until we started having trouble identifying the person and then it became more and more difficult. You know, we've gone to extensive lengths to try and identify uh, the John Doe. 
But unfortunately, at this point, we haven't been able to do that. It turned out that Lyle Stevick was a fake name. And since his death in 2001, no missing person has matched him. No family has come forward to claim him. And the identity of the man who committed suicide in room five of the Lake Quinault Hotel remains unknown. On a missing person, you're looking for the, the person themselves, and, and, and it's, that's hard to come by. And in a situation like this, if somebody has a missing person, usually they, they're, they're searching out you know, that information, and that information is readily available to, to get. But for some reason in this case, it just hasn't come up. Yeah, it's like it's like a reverse missing persons case almost. Exactly, exactly. It was what it is. I'm Daniel, and welcome to episode 28 of Thin Air, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the missing from all around the world. Today's episode is somewhat different than any other episode we've done before, and in some ways is the opposite of what we regularly do. In today's story, rather than a missing person, we have the person, but their identity is missing. And Lyle's story, or the man who claimed he was Lyle anyway, is one that is particularly unsettling, if only for the reason that it so tantalizingly feels like it could be solved. The good part is, is like I said, we were able to find the victim, you know, shortly after death, we were able to get dental records and fingerprints and DNA and all the things we need to identify them if we just could, you know, find the person that's missing. First, here's what we know about the days leading up to the suicide of the man who called himself Lyle Stevick. Detective Johansson wasn't on the scene that day in 2001, but is currently in charge of the investigation, which was recently reclassified as active. When it first came out, I was working for the sheriff's office, but I was a deputy then. And then at one point I worked as the uh, detective sergeant in investigations. And so I kind of oversaw the case while I was the detective sergeant. And I've since been promoted to lieutenant. And so I've just kind of, you know, have probably more knowledge than most of the guys working on it. But the initial people that were working on it are detectives and, and they've since retired. The investigation started with the body left behind. Lyle was white and estimated to be between 20 and 30 years old at the time of his death. He had black hair combed straight back and hazel eyes. He was 6'2 and weighed around 140 pounds. The clothes he wore were generally available from many major retailers in the U.S. A gray Fruit of the Loom t-shirt, Hanes underpants, Levi 500 jeans, and black Timberland boots. The clothes themselves were all very clean, as noted in his case file. Investigators began to look for some physically unique characteristics. So, you know, obviously the first thing you can do is obviously look for, you know, identification, you know, on, on the person's scars, marks, and, and tattoos, and, and check local databases and law enforcement records, you know, systems in order to try and identify him just by his, you know, maybe by his physical characteristics, you know, general overall description. Of course, all those things were done and we weren't able to identify him that way. There were some unique things about Lyle's appearance that stood out. Both of his hands had small cuts and abrasions. On the knuckles of his right hand specifically, there were two vertical circular gashes. He had a mole on the left side of his chin 
and had at some point in his life an appendectomy. It is also noted that he had four missing teeth. Investigators also began to collect other pieces of information from his body, using all forensic tools they had available. They then shared those results with online databases in the hopes of getting a match. We then ended up having uh, fingerprints taken and we got the dental records and we got DNA. And so the DNA has been entered in our in the missing persons database. The fingerprints were submitted to APHIS, which is the FBI's database for fingerprints. And it's also been submitted to Interpol for uh, countries that cooperate in, you know, those type of investigations. And then the dental records are also entered in the missing persons database. So as far as the sheriff's office on our end, it's, we have all, you know, way more information than sometimes when you find somebody, for example, if you just find bones or you find, you know, skeletal remains. I mean, we've got everything. We have, we have DNA, we have blood, we have fingerprints. One of the reasons we have so much evidence in Lyle's case is a man named Lane Humans who was central to the investigation. He declined our request for an interview. Lane was the original detective on the case and then became the coroner. That's Lindsay Soller. Lindsay moderates a forum on Reddit dedicated to the mystery of Lyle's lost identity. Reddit is one of the largest online communities for sharing news, information, and media. She dedicates much of her free time to the effort of identifying him. As someone who is a primary source for Lyle's case, Lindsay understands Lane's hesitancy when speaking publicly about Lyle. So he was the detective who went to the, to the hotel. And he has given so much information about Lyle over the years. He did question and answers on Wesleys. He's answered every question I've ever asked him over the years. I think it probably gets tiring having people ask the same question. He, he told me once, he goes, I enjoy answering questions for people, but some people just ask questions that are like, why is that relevant to helping find him? Lindsay, also known by her Reddit username Urbex, has opened up Lyle's story to the world, and the work she has done on this case is incredible. And that's because, for her, it's sort of an obsession. I took a vacation day just to Lyle. We call it Lyling. When we all get together to do research together, hey, do you want a Lyle tonight? Yeah, okay, I'll Lyle tonight. Yeah, he's now a verb. A big part of what Lindsay is doing is attempting to rule out via circumstance, and if it comes to it, DNA, missing persons who could be Lyle Stevick. She's ruled out almost a thousand different potential matches. After a while, you just, you've gone through so many missing people and so many options and so many different theories that after a while you're like, this guy doesn't exist. It's overwhelming and underwhelming. For once, I just want to be whelmed when it comes to Lyle. Just whelmed. Much of the information we have on Lyle's case has only been made public because of Lindsay and people like her filing Public Information and Freedom of Information Act requests, and detailing all the information into easily accessible and captivating documents. I started working on the last of a case probably 
somewhere is around two and a half years ago. We've started up by making a case file. It really gives most of the information about what we can find out about Lyle. So it gives agency case numbers from the law enforcement agency, Doe Network case files, um, NamUs case file numbers, everything like that. Just the basics of how you can search for this guy for basic information. Um, any photos we can get, including um, we um, crowdfunded a age regression by an artist called Jovi Hayes um, at photojoes.com. What she does is take an original photo or the autopsy photo of um, a decedent and regresses it to make them look like they would if they were a teenager or a child. So we took the 25 to 35 year old Lyle and turned him into 16 year old Lyle to see if anybody recognized him from high school. Because of these efforts, researching Lyle can quickly give you what feels like inside information. There's pictures of his body, the hotel room, and his belongings. It feels strangely intimate seeing Lyle so soon after his death. You can see all of these pictures for yourself if you are feeling brave. We will post links to the Google Doc on our website, thinairpodcast.com. I think it's really the, the mystery. I was always somebody who loves researching things. I like knowing the history of all kinds of things, which is funny because I hated history in high school. Um, but my mother is a genealogist and a historian, and my job when I'm helping her out is databasing things. So like all of our compiled information, all of our possible matches, things like that, I love doing that. I love the data entry and research of things. I'm, I'm that kind of person. Is it, it digs in my brain until I can figure out the answer, which makes it so awesome searching for doe cases because it's always searching. It's always compiling all of the data you can and then going, okay, what piece of the puzzle am I missing? Each unidentified remains case has its own story. Lindsay got started on the Lyle Stevick case after being involved in other online forums and communities that seek to put a name to the unidentified dead. The first case that caught Lindsay's attention was known as Grateful Doe, a man who died in a car accident in 1995. The man's face was injured beyond recognition and no missing persons case matched his description. Of the few things known about him, one of the most important was a pair of Grateful Dead tickets in his pocket. I kind of actually stumbled upon Lyle's case because I was working with a group of people called the Grateful Doe subreddit. And they're amazing. They've done a bunch of different Doe cases. I started reading about different Doe cases on that subreddit. And the first one they did was obviously Grateful Doe, Jason Callahan, who's since been identified thanks to them. The man, now known as Jason Callahan, was unidentified until the efforts of a group of people actively looking for answers in his case were successful. He was only known as Grateful Doe until 2015, after his mother found the group and the connection was made. I didn't really get a chance to work on the Jason Callahan case because all of the new information and everything, it went so fast. I mean, it, it's not fast because he, you know, passed away in the 90s, but from when I started reading it to when they found out 
okay, this is probably who it is, let's get DNA, was only a couple of months. So I really didn't help with that at all. I was just kind of a backseat driver going, oh, this is cool. And somebody had posted saying, hey, we're looking for moderators on a different subreddit. And I said, okay. And that was three years ago, and I'm still stuck. We're just hoping that one day we can move on to another case and bring him home. Both Lindsay and Detective Johansson's investigation focus on Lyle's activities leading up to his death. If you met somebody at a party, let's say, and you were going to tell them, you know, what the Lyle Stevick case is about, how would you sort of like, how would you explain it to them or how would you summarize it for them? I'm the creepy person that goes to parties and talks about dead guys. Interesting. No, I totally know that about myself. What am I saying? I'm actually that person. It's such a weird case. I mean, it's a guy in the middle of nowhere because Grace Harbor is definitely the middle of nowhere. And nobody knows how he got there. Nobody knows who he is. And he just decided one day, yep, that's it. It's just weird that there's nobody looking for him. There's nobody that could be him. There's a lot of different theories of how Lyle ended up in Amanda Park in the first place, but little concrete evidence to back up those theories. Lyle checked into the hotel around 4.30 p.m. on September 14th, three days before his death. There are no notes about sightings of him in town before this, so it is thought that he arrived the same day he checked in. The case file, which Lindsay compiled, notes that, quote, he arrives at the same time buses stop outside the motel, but nobody is certain how Lyle traveled there, end quote. Do you know how he got to Grays Harbor? We don't, no. So there was no evidence found in terms of like bus tickets or, because I know a lot of people speculated that he's come by bus, but there was no evidence one way or the other about how he arrived. That's correct. No evidence. Lane Humans, the detective turned coroner that Lindsay discussed earlier, was heavily involved with sharing information about Lyle's case online. He answered an incredibly long set of questions on a web sleuths forum in 2011. And here's what he said about the bus. Quote, Bus drivers were interviewed, but neither specifically remembered Lyle. I wasn't able to locate any bus passengers. End quote. Lane also made note of other ways to get into Amanda Park. Quote, the closest airport is SeaTac, about 140 miles north. There is a small airport in Hoquiam, but doesn't have commercial flights. We had put the information in the local paper, but no one called saying they had seen him. In hindsight, a lot more effort should have been put into neighborhood interviews, but it was obviously a suicide of a person who did not appear to be a street person. I had investigated many deaths where the next of kin hadn't seen the person for years. I strongly believed that Lyle would be reported missing by his family. The motel is next to US Highway 101, a two-lane road." End quote. The next step that Lyle took was to check into the hotel he checks in with the name Lyle Stevick, with the last name spelled S-T-E-V-I-K, which 
as investigators would later find out, was fake. A lot has been made of this name, much of which is because the name is also that of a character in the 1987 Joyce Carol Oates novel, You Must Remember This. Have you read Joyce Carol Oates' novel with Lyle Stavitt character? I've read the first four pages. <laughs> yeah, I read it and then I had to put it down for something and I just never picked it back up. I considered for a while um, that that book would have been on reading lists for universities or high schools. And that maybe it was reading that they had to take and that's where he got the name. A Los Angeles Times review of the novel which was written at the time of the book's release, describes the character of Lyle Stevick in some detail. Quote, In the Stevick family, Father Lyle is a family man. He and his wife have four children. Oates uncovers the dark secrets inherent in all families, incest, adolescent sexual desire, isolation, and suicide. End quote. In the story, it is not Lyle who attempts suicide, though, but his daughter, Enid, who has a romantic relationship with her uncle. We reached out to Joyce Carol Oates about the name Lyle Stevick to see if it has any deeper meaning. She wrote, Lyle Stevick is not the main character, but the father of the main character. He begins to disintegrate under the pressure of political fears, namely nuclear war, and builds a family bunker, as some families did in the 1950s, urged by the federal government. But he does not try to commit suicide. It seems futile to link the two Lyles, though the mystery of the unidentified suicide is certainly intriguing. Oates continued, The name is totally fictitious. I made it up at the time of writing the novel. I have no idea of an actual historical Lyle Stevick, and am sorry to hear this, but I have nothing to say about the coincidental use of the name. So, I mean, if, they, if he was going to copy everything, wouldn't he at least spell Stevick the same way? Because in the book, it's a CK. That name, though, like Lyle Stevick, it's not like a name that you just make up. That You know, it's like, it's so particular, that, and it's just, that's... It, drives me insane i'm sure it drives you way more insane but i know that there's there's actually a lyle stevick who lives in oregon there's also another one who lives in um arizona i've reached out to both um they do not know who lyle is one of them said that his facial structure does remind him of people in his family but nobody is missing um but that he would reach out to like farther out family to see if anybody knew him and nobody does Lindsay doesn't necessarily think that the character of Lyle Stevick has much meaning, but she does think that the name could be an anagram. The anagram theory is one that is connected to an early web forum which she thinks Lyle could have visited. Ash Space was, or is, I'm not sure, it's kind of up in the air. It was an old forum that was made for people who were planning on killing themselves. Not as a, you know, a oh, don't do that, you have so much to live for, but as a support of, you know, ways to do it, how to say goodbye, how to purge all of your things, a support group. That's my understanding anyway. One of the people who I assume frequented the forum was named Steven. If you take Lyle Stevick and you use it as an anagram, it's Kill Stevie. And I'm wondering if Stevie and Steven are the same person. Because it was posted 
just a few days before Lab killed himself. And he wrote a how to hang yourself. I did ask, I believe it was Lane, about Stephen. He goes, I always had this kind of backseat wonder if Lyle was Stephen as well. The post on Ash Space by the person named Stephen was published on September 11th, 2001, just five days before Lyle's death. The title of the page is Stephen's Suspension Hanging Reference, and it lays out the best methods for hanging yourself. Quick warning here, sensitive listeners may want to skip this part. There are some similarities in the post to what happened to Lyle. A major aspect of Stephen's advice is that you should be comfortable while doing this, or you won't do it. Lyle placed a cloth under his neck, something that the post advocates. Stephen also argues to not let your loved ones find you, and argues that both, quote, high or low hangings work. Lyle's would have been a low hanging. But there are some notable differences between the advice Stephen gives and how Lyle ends up. The post suggests the use of a rope rather than a belt. And at the end of the post, Stephen explains how he would do it. Quote, I have a very flexible plastic twine, the kind you use to tie a Christmas tree to your car, or at least the kind Home Depot supplies for such purpose. I have a cutoff of a very soft and mildly cushy blanket to cover my neck. I have some padding for the neck from the same blanket. I'm going to fasten everything up, tie the twine, make the noose, pad and cover my neck, put on a good song, put the noose on my neck, take a deep breath, bite down, and shift my body so that all the weight is on my neck and just let go of any muscle control in my arms, then legs, and the rest should take care of itself." I did reach out to the administrator that runs the archived page, and they told me that I had I was using him as a personal canon and to leave well enough alone unless I could find a family that um, was mourning and needed to know if that was their child, that I should leave well enough alone. So we left it alone. But I, I truly believe that that's probably him. The problem is there's no information about him because it was a um, an anonymous forum. Another detail, which has fueled a lot of speculation, was the address that Lyle gave when checking into the hotel, which was 1019 South Progress Avenue, Idaho. Noted by Lane in the Web Sleuths Q&A session is that it appears as though Lyle wrote the street address and for state, he wrote ID. These two things matched his handwriting. But there's the name of a city, Meridian, also present on the registration form. You can see this in the photo. Lyle's handwriting is block letters, all caps, and the word Meridian is in a loopy cursive that matches that of the hotel manager. 
So it's not known if Lyle provided this information himself or if the hotel manager found the information after the fact. The address that Lyle gave is one that is close to us here in Boise. It is the address of a Best Western Hotel, which was built in 1995. Jordan took the short trip to Meridian to see the hotel for herself. Okay, so I am currently on my way out to the address that Lyle Stevick gave in Meridian, Idaho. I guess that was just sort of, I'm driving there. It's not too far away from where we live. It's pretty close. I'd say like 20 minutes away on the freeway. I, w- I guess I was just thinking about how I'm literally driving to an address that a now dead man gave on a hotel slip almost 16 years ago. The first thing I noticed is there's just a lot of generic businesses around here. So this is actually tucked away from the street, but looking to my left, it's directly on, it looks right on the interstate, so right on I-84. So it seems like a, I mean, a very transitory kind of place. I'm from Boise, so I live in Idaho. Meridian is just the next city over. Did you go? Did you go? I need you to I need you to go in the steam tunnels underneath and tell me if there's other bodies or something. Or like a clue that's written and it says, Hey, you found my clue. Please go to this address next for the next clue, like it's scavenger hunt. I'm gonna go tell the hotel clerk kind of what I'm doing so they don't think I'm weird. At the hotel that he checked into, he gave this address of this specific hotel. Really? As his address. Have you heard of Reddit before? Yes. The person who runs that subreddit we talked to her. Yeah, and she wanted us to come here and take pictures and like describe what it looks like here. She'd probably want me to ask if there's like some secret like murder basement or something like that. No, nothing like that. <laughs> not, nothing not like that. that. I don't know if I would have known that there was something yeah. like, like no demons coming from there. <laughs> <laughs> right. No demons from the basement. <laughs> exactly. Got it, got it. But yeah, I don't know if anything personally. I yeah. mean, have you heard anything? Yeah. Yeah, I've scoured so much about that address. There are other Progress Avenues, but not South Progress Avenue. I looked at the hotel. I've looked at Google Maps. I've looked at old um, archived photos of aerial photos of what it was like before there was a hotel to see if there was a house there. Looked at land grant records, nothing. It's a hotel in a field by itself. (sighs) Investigators in Amanda Park did contact Meridian Police, who went to the hotel and asked if workers had seen anyone that looked like Lyle. They hadn't. Yeah, at that point, they they checked the address and then they realized it was, you know, a a motel. And so they they contacted Meridian Police. law enforcement and and provided you know photos and and the identifying you know information we had on him and they weren't able to identify him they provided them you know copies of the pictures and whatnot of of him and they didn't know him and they didn't recognize the name and then the they also contacted the hotel to see if they you know knew this person or you know could identify him or had any you know that the name Lyle Stevick rang a bell to them and Nobody, you know, knew him, didn't recognize him, and didn't recognize the name Lyle Stevick. I, I believe investigators also uh, requested uh, hotel registry, you know, for people prior to that, just to see if maybe 
someone had checked in there, not only under the name Lyle Stavik, but other names, just in case, you know, he used a different name at that time. After giving the address, Lyle pays for one night's stay. The hotel clerk describes him as polite, but not very talkative, and thinks he may have had a slight Canadian accent. She thought he might have had a backpack, but couldn't remember. Lyle's then given the keys to room number eight. He heads to his room, takes a shower, but shortly after returns to the front desk and asks for another room because of the noise from a nearby trailer park. He moves to room five. Many people, including the hotel clerk, make note of Lyle's attitude as being strange, that he was, quote, giving off bad vibes and acting spaced. The next day, which is Saturday, September 15th, a maid came to the door and he told her that he was going to stay a while longer and didn't need the room cleaned, but that he could use clean towels. He's later seen pacing up and down the highway in front of the hotel. The next day, Sunday, September 16th, he buys a newspaper, The Daily World. The maid visited again, but he sent her away. The next morning, September 17th, is the day he is found. The maid enters the room, but thinks he is praying. When she tries to speak to him, he doesn't answer, and she leaves the room. She tells the manager about the praying man. He enters the room and discovers Lyle, dead. That is when the police were called. When we get back from the break, we'll talk about Lyle's hotel room, what items he left behind, and the many theories for what they could mean. Join us after this short word from our sponsor. This episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Smile Direct Club. You can get started with an at-home impression for only $95, and Smile Direct Club is offering half off to our listeners. It's completely risk-free and covered by the Smile Guarantee. So if the aligner service isn't a good fit for you, you get your money back. Using our code, you can save 50% off the $95 evaluation cost. Anyone age 12 and over can participate in the Smile Direct Club evaluation to get started on straightening their smile. You take your impressions in the privacy of your home at your own schedule. Smile Direct Club treatment is very affordable. Aligner treatment is 60% less than other brands or braces, and you could save even more when you use your dental insurance or an FSA because Smile Direct Club accepts both. After receiving my own at-home impression kit, I was a little nervous about making good impressions of my teeth, but their impression guide eases you through every step. It was fast and easy, and because the process was explained so well, I actually had a lot of fun creating my own impressions. All that came next was sending them off and waiting for the results. Once my impression kit was processed, I got to see a 3D rendering of my teeth and how they would change. It made me so excited to see what my new smile would look like and I can't wait for my new aligners. 
Smile Direct Club believes everyone deserves a smile that they love and that invisible aligners shouldn't cost a small fortune. Treatment time averages six months and ranges from three to 10 months. So what are you waiting for? Do you wanna try it for yourself, risk-free? I think you do. Save 50% off the cost of Smile Direct Club's at-home impression kit by visiting smiledirectclub.com and using the promo code THINAIR at checkout. Not available in North Carolina. That's Smile Direct Club and use the promo code THINAIR. After Lyle's body was found, investigators began a search of the room itself. While Lyle didn't leave much behind, what they did find has, as everything else in this case, caused much speculation. It's clear that Lyle had a well-thought-out plan. The window of the main room was covered by a large bedsheet, and the metal rack he hanged himself from had two large pillows wedged on each side likely to muffle the noise of his thrashing body. The room itself was largely tidy. The bed appeared to have been slept in, but the time of death is still estimated to be in the evening hours of September 16th. By his bed was a white comic card with the words, For the Room, written in capital letters. Inside, there was $160 in new $20 bills, which is odd because there's no bank or ATM nearby. Doesn't really have anything with him, doesn't have a bag, has like a toothbrush and a pen and some change and some crisp, you know, bills, which I can't figure out. In the trash can, there's the newspaper that Lyle bought the day before, as well as an empty Pepsi can and a piece of paper with just the word Suicide, written, again, in Lyle's handwriting, all capital letters. I think the, like, the little note that's suicide on it confuses the shit out of me. But I think there's umpteen number of reasons he could have written it down. Lane commented on this in the WebSleuths forum, quote, The suicide printing was slightly larger and more distinct. The paper was crumpled and thrown in the trash can. I had speculated that he either wrote the word out because he wasn't sure if he was spelling it right, or he had written it as a sign so that whoever found him would know it was a suicide. He then realizes it will be obvious what has happened, so he discards the note, end quote. I know my mother thinks that he wasn't alone in the room, which is the topic of quite a lot of different uh, dinnertime arguments over the dinner table here at my house. You think he was alone, your mom thinks he wasn't. She thinks that him and somebody else were having fun in the room and things went wrong and they said, oh shit, I have to make it look like it was on purpose and strung him up. Which I'm sitting here going, how are you going to lift a, you know, a hundred and whatever he was pound man into a closet? And that the, that the suicide note was faked? No, that hanging was faked. Oh, that the hanging was faked, and that but that the suicide note was... To make it look like it was a suicide. Lane dismisses the idea that someone could have been in the room with Lyle and was responsible for his death, either intentionally or accidentally, 
Quote, I've seen staged crimes, and no one is this thorough. They always overlook details. End quote. A full autopsy of Lyle's body was done. He had nothing in his stomach, and there were no food wrappers of any kind in the room. There also wouldn't have been many options for food near the hotel, so it seems that he wasn't eating much in the days before his death. Lane also speculated that though Lyle weighed 140 pounds, that it seemed likely that he had lost some weight in the months leading up to his death, as his clothes were large for his frame. Quote, I should add that Lyle was very thin. If he lost weight, it was over a period of time. The skin was not loose or sagging. It is possible he lost the weight due to depression. End quote. Further examination of his body revealed more of who he could have been in life. For example, his hands were uncalloused and his nails were clean and trimmed. He had shaved recently and Lane thought that his hair had been trimmed in the last month or so. This led Lane to believe that Lyle hadn't lived on the streets. Other than being thin, Lyle had no sign of disease or medical problems, other than the small cuts on his hands and a previous appendectomy scar. There was no evidence that he was a smoker, and there were no drugs in his system. During this time, Lyle's DNA and fingerprints were taken, dental impressions and charts were created, police then began the process of submitting these to various online databases. So when you first submit them, they will check them against all the fingerprints that are on file. So they're going to look for any you know, potential matches. And if they find any matches, then obviously they'll do a more thorough and, you know, investigation to, to see if they, are, you know, they have identified the person. If you don't get any identifications, then those fingerprints are put on file in case somebody else submits some fingerprints and then it, you get a match that way. So if, if this person, for example, had an arrest record or maybe he was a school teacher and had to have, you know, fingerprints for pre-employment, anything like that, his, you know, his fingerprints would be in the system. And then there's another system called CAFIS, and that's for missing people. And then his prints have been submitted to CAFIS as well. And that, and that gets checked periodically. His DNA is entered into the system, right? It is, yeah. So that's the thing. And nowadays, I think pretty most people are pretty familiar with that process, and they're pretty familiar with the idea that family members can come forward and and provide their DNA, and it's enough to give us a you know identifiable reading on a person to find out who the person is related to. Do they take DNA from people who commit crimes nowadays and enter them into those databases? They do. So if a relative of his were to get arrested for whatever reason and their dna were to be en entered would it would it ring a match for for him yeah and, and, and that's what it depends on is how close the relative is to the person lyle's buried shortly after his autopsy in nearby aberdeen washington one of the more recent developments in lyle's case is that his body had isotope testing done just recently in the last few years, we were able to go in and get, you know, more uh, information by exhuming the body. And then they, they used um, that to do an isotope testing to try and narrow down where he potentially could have, you know, traveled prior to his death. Isotope analysis is predominantly used by archaeologists to determine things like diet and where a person or group of people lived. These signatures are in the water you drink throughout your life 
and tie you to a general geographical location. Lyle had oxygen isotopic testing done to try and determine where he had traveled in his life and where he could have spent his childhood. The results from those tests showed that Lyle lived and traveled in the U.S. rather than outside of the country, as was often speculated. There are many U.S. regions linked to his isotopic markers, including isolated portions of some West states, including California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, or Oklahoma, or in several Midwest states, including regions like the shores of the Great Lakes and in portions of some South and Northeast states, and goes on to list 13 other states he could have lived or traveled through. One place that was ruled out was the place that he died. The testing showed it was not likely that he was a resident of Amanda Park or the Pacific Northwest at any point in his life. Like for me, if I was to do my isotopes, it would show Nova Scotia. It would show probably New Brunswick. It would show the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and it would show down in the Caribbean because that's where I've been. But you also have to realize for isotopes that some places have the same isotopal makeup. So like, for instance, and I'm just picking places, but it could be that all of Montana has the exact same isotopes as all of New Brunswick, Canada. I may have never been to Montana, but it'll show, still show up on my chart. I think the most recent you know, development would just be the results of that isotope you know, testing. And, and again, that's not exact science. You know, it is science, but it's not, you can't pinpoint them to say they were, you know, in this state, it's, you know, it's a, it's a large area and, and, and it's not completely, you know, a perfect science, I guess. I actually had somebody from NamUs the other day tell me, like, we use isotopes once in a while, but it's so hard to pinpoint anything with it that we just, it's a last resort. Which sucks, because when we first got the isotope result from Brad, I was like, ooh, ooh, uh, you know, something we can work on. And now I'm sitting here looking at it going, ugh, fine. I've reached out to all the, an like, Ancestry and 23andMe and Family Finder and all of those, um, but they all use... Um, saliva samples and all they have for Lyle is blood so that, that's probably the only the most recent development but other than that there's nothing really new I mean the sheriff's office has done you know we've got more than in a missing or unidentified person case we've got you know more than you could ask for we have everything that you use to identify people and, and unfortunately you know this person's family or this person's relatives or you know have not looked at sharing DNA or, or, you know, filed, you know, reports where we could get his dental records or his, you know, his uh, fingerprints or anything like that. So uh, is it possible that, you know, his family just don't, don't know the way to do that? That's possible. Is it possible that he's from, you know, out of the area or out of the country? We also uh, worked with the uh, RCMPs in Canada trying to identify this, you know, subject and again, to no avail. So. As all the evidence collected in Lyle's case sits, waiting for a match, the theories and speculation about who Lyle was has continued, largely online. A key aspect of what Lindsay does is field questions from visitors to the subreddit, which range from insightful to more outlandish. One common theory concerns the proximity of Lyle's death 
to the September 11th attacks. So as somebody who, and I feel really bad saying this because I'm sure people will yell at me for it later, but as somebody who has worked on this case for two years, the people who are brand new, who send me messages saying, hey, Urbex, um, I'm just wondering if you've looked at this person. And I'll go, yep, he was ruled out by DNA four years ago. Please do your research before you ask me stupid questions. And it's not because I don't want to help them. It's not at all. I'm anything but an ever-loving administrator of that subreddit. I'm gung-ho for new people to help. We welcome you with open arms. But please read up on the case before you go, hey, do you think he's so-and-so? No, because so-and-so was African-American. Maybe you should look again. The 9-11 thing comes up like, it's like once a month, it'll be like, hey, new person wants to know about 9-11. And I'm like, oh, not approving that post. Sorry. Do you get a lot of inquiries about this case from the public? Uh, we hadn't initially, but uh, I would say in the last few years, we've gotten a lot of public interest in the case. It's gained, gained a lot of popularity on the Internet. And there's been, like I said, several groups that are out there you know, actively trying to identify uh, our John Doe. Do you think that's a like do you think that's a positive thing or is it sort of more of a negative thing to have that much like interest around it? Uh, I don't I don't know. I don't see it being a negative thing at all. I think it's I think it's positive. I think people are you know doing everything they can. I think unfortunately, because, you know, people don't have all the information. I think a lot of uh, repeated work gets done, though. There was a theory that Lindsay came across that stuck with her one night while researching Lyle's case with another moderator she discovered what she thought was a major breakthrough. So there is a circus called, or was a circus called Circus Chimera that used to go and tour the U.S. And if you look at the isotope maps, the isotope timeline for that year follows that circus. So, of course, we reached out to the circus to see if any of them could win. And I remember one day I went, yeah, I'm looking into the circus thing because it bugs me. And I'm wondering if maybe, you know, he was a circus kid because it happens. Parents are in the circus and you off you go. You're not in school. You just you're part of the circus. And I'm looking through like old archive photos of them. And then I saw him. And I went, oh, my God, I found Lyle. This photo of this young man sitting eating porridge or something sitting at like this table with a bunch of people eating and he caught my eye and I looked again and it was like that's him it has to be him 110% has to be this man I verified with the person who took the photo no it is not him because that person is still alive it's a little bittersweet. So it's the, holy shit, I did it. This isn't all for naught. And then the, holy shit, I did it. What am I going to do tomorrow? Right? So, but it was just, I I panicked, right? Because you're going through your head going, okay, who do I have to tell first? Do I tell Lane? Do I tell Brad? Do I reach out and try to figure out who this person is? Do I send this to them first? Do I do research first? Your head goes wild, and then it was, oh, this isn't him. I'm stupid for thinking it was him. 
mild depression for the next six days. <laughs> Lane Humans also had a theory of who Lyle was in life and what was important to him. Quote, Lyle doesn't fit the norm of the suicides I've investigated. The majority of them killed themselves at home, in their car, somewhere they feel comfortable. Very few have put this much forethought into it, which leads me to believe he is well-educated. He didn't kill himself right away, he spent his last few days probably analyzing his situation. If a person really wanted to disappear, they could walk miles into the woods. Gray's Harbor is 1,900 square miles of woods. Lyle wanted his body to be found, to be taken care of, to be buried. I believe he just didn't want to burden his family. Lane continues, only about 15% of people who commit suicide leave a note, which is so sad. The loved ones left behind are left with so many questions. I believe Lyle did notify his family. He just didn't leave a note for us. I have investigated several other suicides where people have come here from out of state and had gotten rid of their identification, jewelry, etc so they wouldn't burden their family with having to deal with the remains. I have always been successful in identifying them until Lyle came along. I think that, you know, we're just going to have to, you know, get lucky and somebody's going to see somebody that was entered as a missing person from maybe a small agency. A lot of times when someone goes missing, agencies don't collect DNA and they don't ask for dental records and they don't they don't get all the information to, to law enforcement, and it's possible that's the case, but I think it's going to have to come from probably somebody that you know knows who this person is. I think they're going to have to go to authorities and start providing some information you know, to law enforcement that would be valuable, but you never know. These cases could be solved you know, by somebody who just happens to see you know, the right missing person that fits. On September 17th, 2001, a man who called himself Lyle Stevick hanged himself in Amanda Park, Washington. He was white, between 20 and 30 years old, 6'2", and 140 pounds. He is thought to be well-educated and possibly traveled the United States before his death. He had black hair and hazel eyes. He is thought to have lost weight in the months before his death. He is buried at Fern Hill Cemetery in Aberdeen, Washington, and his identity and name remain unknown. If you have any information about the identity of Lyle Stevick, please contact the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Department. Contact information is on our website. You can also send us an email at thinairpodcast at gmail.com and we will pass your information along. We reference a lot of online materials in this episode, which will be available on our blog about Lyle's case at our website, thinairpodcast.com. There is also the subreddit about Lyle's case, which you can find at reddit.com slash r slash Before asking questions, we recommend you read through the extensive information and Google Doc available on Lyle's case. We will link to all of this information on our website. 
Special thanks to Brad Johansson and Lindsay Soller for speaking with us about Lyle's case. Thin Air Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Daniel Calderon, and Jordan Sims. Our intern is Chris Reich. Music for today's episode is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out their amazing collection at sessions.blue. We also have to thank our Patreon donors. We couldn't do what we do without the support we get from listeners through Patreon. One of the rewards available is to be listed as an executive producer of our show and to get a shout out in the episode. The executive producers of Thin Air Podcast are Bonnie Mortensen, Anthony Loper, Rebecca Hardberger, Aaron Moore, Lane McManus, Furl Durbin, Heather Cadu, Mistea Pena, and Elizabeth Farmer. Thank you so, so much for your continued support of our podcast. <laughs>